Hello and welcome to the December issue of the Lancet Global Health Podcast. My name is Job Mogire. Malaria is still a significant global health issue and treatment remains fundamental in preventing malaria-related deaths. We have the pleasure today of hearing from an author who will elaborate on some strategies that may help slow the emergence of resistance to the essential anti-malarial drugs. Welcome, Dr. Boni. Thank you very much, Job. For the benefit of the listeners who may not be conversant with your work, please introduce yourself. My name is Maciek Boni. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oxford's Department of Medicine, and I'm permanently based at the Oxford University Clinical Research Unit in Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. One key focus in my research group is the mathematical modeling of the evolution of antimalarial drug resistance, and my group is particularly interested in the question of how to distribute antimalarial drugs as widely as possible without also strongly driving the evolution of drug resistance. Thank you for such a succinct introduction, Professor. The article we are discussing today is based on simulation models to preserve the efficacy of artemisinin-based combination therapies. How important are artemisinin-based combination therapies in the treatment of malaria? And how serious is the issue of resistance to the SCTs? Artemisinin combination therapies are very important in the treatment and control of malaria. They currently form the foundation of malaria clinical case management, and they are the only highly efficacious antimalarials we have left. The other drugs that were widely used to treat malaria last century, drugs like chloroquine, sulfidoxine pyrimethamine, mefloquine, all of these drugs experienced a loss of efficacy due to the evolution of drug resistance. So this brings us to the question of resistance to artemisinin-based therapies. Artemisinin-resistant phenotypes were first observed in Cambodia in 2007 and 2008, and these findings were published in 2009. And since then, these parasites have spread to Vietnam, Thailand, Myanmar, and Bangladesh. And the great concern, of course, is what would happen if artemisinin resistance were to be introduced into Africa. A loss of efficacy of ACTs in Africa would have dire consequences for the entire continent because literally hundreds of millions of people in Africa currently rely on ACTs as their first-line antimalarial treatment. That's a very solid foundation on which this work is based. And the overarching concept of this work that you're presenting is the role of multiple first-line therapies as a strategy to preserve the efficacy of the current antimalarial drugs. Could you please elaborate on this? Sure. Written into the guidelines of national malaria control programs all over the world is the notion of a first-line therapy. Almost all national malaria control programs recommend a single first-line therapy for uncomplicated falciparum malaria, except for cases of allergy, pregnancy, or when the first-line therapy fails, in which case a second-line therapy is prescribed. Normally, the first-line therapy is the most efficacious one, and this is, of course, the best decision for patients. However, this is also the fastest way to drive drug resistance evolution. So in our modeling study, we investigated the benefits of deploying multiple different first-line therapies simultaneously. This would mean that at clinics, hospitals, or other locations where patients seek care, three different ACTs would be available for use and they would be prescribed to patients in roughly equal proportions. 
This way, at any one time, there would be multiple different ACTs in use in the population, and as malaria parasites jump from person to person, they would constantly be faced with different types of drug challenges. This, of course, makes drug resistance evolution very difficult for the parasites, and the reason is that this is essentially combination therapy being applied at a population scale. So this kind of work you opted to do by simulation. In brief, what are the merits of a simulation model in answering complex questions such as that of the resistance of antimalarial drugs? The main benefits of simulation models are that they allow you to explore thousands of different scenarios different transmission settings, different levels of ACT coverage, different evolutionary features of drug resistance. For example, we know from our past experiences in malaria that drug resistance evolution is something that occurs on a scale of five to 10 years, but it would be very difficult to run a field study for that long just to look at long-term drug resistance outcomes. To give you an example of one thing we were able to do that we wouldn't be able to do with a field study, we were able to use the model to trial out a strategy where two ACTs and one on artemisinin based therapy were used simultaneously in the population. And we found that including this one non-artemisinin therapy in multiple first-line therapy strategy allowed us to preserve artemisinin efficacy for longer, resulting in a 40% to 70% increase in the useful therapeutic life of artemisinin drugs. And what are the key findings from the models you simulated and the policy implications that these findings have in the treatment of malaria? The main finding from our modeling analysis is that deployment of multiple first-line therapies has better long-term outcomes in delaying and slowing down the evolution of drug resistance and also in reducing the long-term number of treatment failures in patients. In our analysis, we compared multiple first-line therapies to two types of rotation strategies where single first-line therapies were rotated in and out of the population. So in the first of these strategies, a single first-line therapy is used until drug resistance causes treatment failure in 10% of patients, at which point it's rotated out and replaced with another therapy. This is the current WHO recommendation, and this is what's done in most countries. And the second strategy we looked at was a straightforward five-year rotation, where a single first-line therapy is used for five years, and then it's replaced. Multiple first-line therapies, when compared to these two rotation strategies, resulted in better health outcomes, fewer treatment failures, and longer times until drug resistance emerged. So to put the number on this, in the scenarios we examined for low transmission settings, the median number of treatment failures was between 16% and 41% lower when multiple first-line therapies were deployed. The policy implications for malaria endemic countries are that ministries of health and national malaria control programs may want to consider the deployment of multiple first-line therapies at national scales as this is a good way to delay the emergence of drug resistance and to reduce treatment failures in the long term. You propose adjustment of national treatment guidelines to encourage adoption of multiple first-line therapies. What opportunities and maybe challenges do you see regarding the implementation of multiple first-line therapies worldwide? I think the biggest challenges we'll face in the near term are in communication and implementation. My guess is that not very many ministries of health have considered deploying multiple first-line therapies partly because this is a new area of research and the modeling evidence to support this has been accumulating slowly over the past decade. When it comes to implementation, 
different countries will have different ways of operationalizing deployment of multiple drugs, and there won't be one best method of distribution. However, the, the bright spot is that national malaria control programs are already used to a complex malaria landscape, and they currently employ numerous scientists who work in entomology, parasitology, pharmacology, and clinical science. The national malaria control programs currently stock and manage multiple types of drugs and insecticides. They already have in place forward-thinking management strategies to prevent the emergence of insecticide resistance. So our hope is that the same types of strategies could be put into place for the future management of drug resistance. That's great. And uh, it would be great if you could share with us any final thoughts, any recommendations that you may have. Well, I think the important near-term questions lie in operations. Different countries will take different approaches to setting guidelines for how multiple first-line therapies should or could be deployed. For example, a country with a high level of resistance to the drug amidiaquine may take a different approach than a country where all ACTs work equally well. A country with high levels of private sector antimalarial purchases will take a different approach than a country where antimalarials are largely distributed by the national health system. So if we can find a way to successfully communicate to ministries of health the urgency of preventing further drug resistance evolution, both for artemisinin as well as for the partner drugs, I think we'll be able to find appropriate ways of deploying MFT that will meet the requirements of different countries. If I could underline one area of urgency, I would say that we were having similar conversations 15 years ago about adopting combination therapies over monotherapies. Adopting combination therapies for malaria took too long, and by the time ACTs were being deployed worldwide, artemisinin-resistant genotypes were already spreading in Cambodia. So over the next five to 10 years, we'll certainly see a struggle to contain the spread of these new artemisinin-resistant genotypes, and we should be ready during this period to act quickly and also to make good use of the available tools that can help stem or contain the spread of artemisinin-resistance. Thank you very much, Dr. Boni. It's a very important global topic. We are glad to, you could join us today and we eagerly look forward to hearing more from the work you continue to do. Thank you. Thank you very much, Job.